Chapter One, Section One of the History of Mr. Polly. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Adrian Pretzelis in Santa Rosa, California. The History of Mr. Polly by H. G. Wells. Chapter the First. Beginnings and the Bazaar. Section One. Hole, said Mr. Polly, and then for a change and with greatly increased emphasis, Hole. He paused, and then broke out with one of his private and peculiar idioms. Oh, beastly, silly wheeze of a hole. He was sitting on a stile between two threadbare-looking fields, and suffering acutely from indigestion. He suffered from indigestion now nearly every afternoon in his life, but as he lacked introspection, he projected the associated discomfort upon the world. Every afternoon he discovered afresh that life as a whole, and every aspect of life that presented itself, was beastly. And this afternoon, lured by the delusive blueness of a sky that was blue because the wind was in the east, he had come out in the hope of snatching something of the joyousness of spring. The mysterious alchemy of mind and body refused, however, to permit any joyousness whatever in the spring. He had had a little difficulty in finding his cap before he came out. He wanted his cap, the new golf cap, and Mrs. Polly must needs fish out his old soft brown felt hat. "'Here's your hat,' she said in a tone of insincere encouragement. He had been rooting among the piled newspapers under the kitchen dresser, and had turned quite hopefully and taken the thing. He put it on, but it didn't feel right. Nothing felt right. He put a trembling hand upon the crown of the thing, and pressed it on his head, and tried it askew to the right, and then askewed to the left. Then the full sense of the indignity offered him came home to him. The hat masked the upper sinister quarter of his face, and he spoke with a wrathful eye regarding his wife from under the brim. In a voice thick with fury he said, "'I suppose you'd like me to wear that silly mud-pie for ever, eh? I tell you, I won't. I'm sick of it. I'm pretty much sick of everything comes to that hat.' He clutched it with quivering fingers. "'Hat!' he repeated. Then he flung it to the ground and kicked it with extraordinary fury across the kitchen. It flew up against the door and dropped to the ground with its ribbon-band half off. "'Shan't go out,' he said, and, sticking his hands into his jacket-pockets, discovered the missing cap in the right one. There was nothing for it but to go straight upstairs without a word, and out, slamming the shop-door hard. "'Beauty,' said Mrs. Polly at last, to a tremendous silence, picking up and dusting the rejected headdress. 
tantrums,' she added. "'I haven't patience.' And moving with the slow reluctance of a deeply offended woman, she began to pile together the simple apparatus of their recent meal for transportation to the scullery sink. The repast she had prepared for him did not seem to her to justify his ingratitude. There had been the cold pork from Sunday and some nice cold potatoes, and Rashdall's mixed pickles, of which he was inordinately fond. He had eaten three gherkins, two onions, a small cauliflower head, and several capers, with every appearance of appetite, and indeed with avidity. And there had been cold suet pudding to follow with treacle, and then a nice bit of cheese. It was the pale, hard sort of cheese he liked. Red cheese, he declared, was indigestible. He had also had three big slices of greyish baker's bread and had drunk the best part of the jugful of beer. But there seems no pleasing some people. "'Tantrums,' said Mrs. Polly at the sink, struggling with the mustard on his plate, and expressing the only solution of the problem that occurred to her. And Mr. Polly sat on the stile, and hated the whole scheme of life, which was at once excessive and inadequate as a solution. He hated Foxbourne, he hated Foxbourne High Street, he hated his shop and his wife and his neighbours, every blessed neighbour, and with indescribable bitterness he hated himself. "'Why did I ever get in this silly hole?' he said. "'Why did I ever?' He sat on the stile and looked with eyes that seemed blurred with impalpable flaws at a world in which even the spring buds were wilted. The sunlight metallic, and the shadows mixed with blue-black ink. To the moralist I know he might have served as a figure of sinful discontent, but that is because it is the habit of moralists to ignore material circumstances. If indeed one may speak of a recent meal as a circumstance, with Mr. Polly Circum. Drink, indeed, our teachers will criticise nowadays, both as regards quantity and quality. But neither church nor state nor school will raise a warning finger between a man and his hunger and his wife's catering. So on nearly every day of his life Mr. Polly fell into a violent rage and hatred against the outer world in the afternoon and never suspected that it was this inner world to which I am with such masterly delicacy alluding, that was thus reflecting its sinister disorder upon the things without. It is a pity that some human beings are not more transparent. If Mr. Polly, for example, had been transparent or even passably translucent, then perhaps he might have realised from the Laocoon struggle he would have glimpsed that indeed he was not so much a human being as a civil war. Wonderful things must have been going on inside Mr. Polly, oh, wonderful things! It must have been like a badly managed industrial city during a period of depression. Agitators, 
acts of violence, strikes at the forces of the law and order doing their best, rushings to and fro, upheavals, the Marseillais, tumbrils, the rumble and thunder of the tumbrils. I do not know why the east wind aggravates life to unhealthy people. It made Mr. Polly's teeth seem loose in his head, and his skin feel like a misfit, and his hair a dry, stringy exasperation. Why cannot doctors give us an antidote to the east wind? Never have the sense to get your hair cut till it's too long, said Mr. Polly, catching sight of his shadow. You blighted, degenerated paint-brush! Ugh! And he flattened down the projecting tails with an urgent hand. Section 2 Mr. Polly's age was exactly thirty-five years and a half. He was a short, compact figure, and a little inclined to a localised embonpoint. His face was not unpleasing, the features fine, but a trifle too pointed about the nose to be classically perfect. The corners of his sensitive mouth were depressed. His eyes were ruddy brown and troubled, and the left one was round with more of wonder in it than its fellow. His complexion was dull and yellowish. That, as I have explained, on account of those civil disturbances. He was, in the technical sense of the word, clean-shaved, with a small, sallow patch under the right ear and a cut on the chin. His brow had the little puckerings of a thoroughly discontented man, little wrinklings and lumps, particularly over his right eye, and he sat with his hands in his pockets, a little askew on the stile, and swung one leg. Howl! he repeated presently. He broke into a quavering song. Rotten, beastly, silly, hole. His voice thickened with rage, and the rest of his discourse was marred by an unfortunate choice of epithets. He was dressed in a shabby black morning coat and vest. The braid that bound these garments was a little loose in places. His collar was chosen from stock, and with projecting corners, technically a wing-poke. That and his tie, which was new and loose and rich in colouring, had been selected to encourage and stimulate customers, for he dealt in gentlemen's outfitting. His golf-cap, which was also from stock and a slant over his eye, gave his mystery a desperate touch. He wore brown leather boots because he hated the smell of blacking. Perhaps, after all, it was not simply indigestion that troubled him. Behind the superficialities of Mr. Polly's being moved a larger and vaguer distress. The elementary education he had acquired had left him with the impression that arithmetic was a flunky science, and best avoided in practical affairs, but even the absence of bookkeeping and a total inability to distinguish between capital and interest could not blind him for ever to the fact that the little shop in the high street was not paying. An absence of returns, 
a construction of credit, a depleted till, the most valiant resolves to keep smiling, could not prevail forever against these insistent phenomena. One might bustle about in the morning before dinner, and in the afternoon after tea, and forget that huge dark cloud of insolvency that gathered and spread in the backgrounds, but it was part of the desolation of these afternoon periods, these grey spaces of time after meals, when all one's courage had descended to the unseen battles of the pit, that life seemed stripped to the bone, and one saw with a hopeless clearness. Let me tell the history of Mr. Polly from the cradle to these present difficulties. First the infant, mewling and puking in its nurse's arms. There had been a time when two people had thought Mr. Polly the most wonderful and adorable thing in the world, had kissed his toenails, saying, Nyum, nyum, and marvelled at the exquisite softness and delicacy of his hair and had called to one another to remark the particular distinction with which he bubbled, and had disputed whether the sound he had made was just dada, or truly and intentionally dada, had washed him in the utmost detail, and wrapped him up in soft warm blankets, and smothered him with kisses. A regal time that was, and four-and-thirty years ago and a merciful forgetness barred Mr. Polly from ever bringing its careless luxury, its autocratic demands and instant obedience, into contrast with his present condition of life. These two people had worshipped him from the crown of his head to the soles of his exquisite feet, and also they had fed him rather unwisely, for no one had ever troubled to teach his mother anything about the mysteries of a child's upbringing, though, of course, the monthly nurse and her charwoman gave some valuable hints, and by his fifth birthday the perfect rhythms of his nice new exterior were already darkened with perplexity. His mother died when he was seven. He began only to have distinctive memories of himself in the time when his education had already begun. I remember seeing a picture of education in some place. I think it was education, but quite conceivably it represented the Empire teaching her sons, and I have a strong impression that it was a wall painting upon some public building in Manchester or Birmingham or Glasgow, but very possibly I'm mistaken about that. It represented a glorious woman with a wise and fearless face stooping over her children, and pointing them to far horizons. The sky displayed the pearly warmth of a summer dawn, and all the painting was marvellously bright, as if with the youth and hope of the delicately beautiful children in the foreground. She was telling them, one felt, of the great prospect of life that opened before them, of the spectacle of the world the splendours of sea and mountain they might travel and see, the joys of skill they might acquire, of effort and the pride of effort, and the devotions and nobilities it was theirs to achieve. 
Perhaps she even whispered of the warm, triumphant mystery of love that comes at last to those who have patience and unblemished hearts. She was reminding them of their great heritage as English children, rulers of more than one-fifth of mankind, of the obligation to do and to be the best that such a pride of empire entails, of their essential nobility and knighthood, and the restraints and the charities and the undisciplined strength that is becoming in knights and rulers. The education of Mr. Polly did not follow this picture very closely. He went for some time to a national school, which was run on severely economical lines, to keep down the rates, by a largely untrained staff. He was set sums to do that he did not understand, and that no one made him understand. He was made to read the Catechism and Bible with the utmost industry, and an entire disregard of pronunciation or significance, and caused to imitate writing copies and drawing copies, and given object lessons upon sealing wax and silkworms and potato bugs and ginger and iron and such like things, and taught various other subjects his mind refused to entertain, and afterwards, when he was about twelve, he was jerked by his parents to finish off in a private school of dingy aspect and still dingier pretensions, where there were no object lessons, and the studies of bookkeeping and French were pursued, but never effectively overtaken, under the guidance of an elderly gentleman who wore a nondescript gown and took snuff, wrote copperplate, explained nothing, and used a cane with remarkable dexterity and gusto. Mr. Polly went into the national school at six, and he left the private school at fourteen, and by that time his mind was in much the same state that you would be in, dear reader, if you were operated upon for appendicitis by a well-meaning, boldly enterprising, but rather overworked and underpaid butcher-boy, who was superseded toward the climax of the operation by a left-handed clerk of high principles, but intemperate habits. That is to say, it was in a thorough mess. The nice little curiosities and willingnesses of a child were in a jumbled and thwarted condition, hacked and cut about. The operators had left, so to speak, all their sponges and ligatures in the mangled confusion and Mr. Polly had lost much of his natural confidence, so far as figures and sciences and languages and the possibilities of learning things were concerned. He thought of the present world no longer as a wonderland of experiences, but as geography and history, as the repeating of names that were hard to pronounce, and lists of products and populations and heights and lengths, and as lists and dates, oh, and boredom indescribable. He thought of religion as the recital of more or less incomprehensible words that were hard to remember, and of the divinity as a limitless being having the nature of a schoolmaster and making infinite rules 
known and unknown rules that were always ruthlessly enforced, and with an infinite capacity for punishment, and, most horrible of all to think of, limitless powers of espial, so that to the best of his ability he did not think of that unrelenting eye. He was uncertain about the spelling and pronunciation of most of the words in our beautiful but abundant and perplexing tongue. That especially was a pity, because words attracted him, and under happier conditions he might have used them well. He was always doubtful whether it was eight sevens or nine eights that was sixty-three. He knew no method for settling the difficulty, and he thought the merit of a drawing consisted in the care in which it was lined in. Lining in bored him beyond measure. But the indigestions of mind and body that were to play so large a part in his subsequent career were still only beginning. His liver and his gastric juice, his wonder and imagination, kept up a fight against the things that threatened to overwhelm soul and body together. Outside the regions devastated by the school curriculum, he was still intensely curious. He had cheerful phases of enterprise, and about thirteen he suddenly discovered reading and its joys. He began to read stories voraciously and books of travel, provided they were also adventurous. He got these chiefly from the local institute, and he also took in, irregularly but thoroughly, one of those inspiring weeklies that dull people used to call penny dreadfuls. Admirable weeklies crammed with imagination that the cheap boys' comics of today have replaced. At fourteen, when he emerged from the valley of the shadow of education, there survived something, indeed it survived still, obscured and thwarted, at five and thirty, that pointed, not with a visible and prevailing finger like the finger of that beautiful woman in the picture, but pointed, nevertheless, to the idea that there was interest and happiness in the world. Deep in the being of Mr. Polly, deep in that darkness, like a creature which has been beaten about the head and left for dead, but that still lives, crawled a persuasion that over and above the things that are jolly and bits of all right, there was beauty, there was delight, that somewhere, magically inaccessible perhaps, but still somewhere, were pure and easy and joyous states of body and mind. He would sneak out on moonless winter nights and stare up at the stars, and afterwards find it difficult to tell his father where he had been. He would read tales about hunters and explorers, and imagine himself riding mustangs as fleet as the wind across the prairies of Western America, or coming as a conquering and adored white man into the swarming villages of Central Africa. He shot bears with a revolver, a cigarette in the other hand, and made a necklace of their teeth and claws for the chief's beautiful young daughter. Also he killed a lion with a pointed stake, stabbing through the beast's heart as it stood over him. 
he thought it would be splendid to be a diver and go down into the dark green mysteries of the sea he led stormers against well-nigh impregnable forts and died on the ramparts at the moment of victory his grave was watered by a nation's tears he rammed and torpedoed ships one against ten he was beloved by queens in barbaric lands and reconciled whole nations to the christian faith he was martyred and took it very calmly and beautifully not only once but twice after the revivalist week it did not become a habit with him he explored the amazon and found newly exposed by the fall of a great tree a rock of gold engaged in these pursuits he would neglect the work immediately in hand sitting somewhat slackly on the form and projecting himself in a manner tempting to a schoolmaster with a cane and twice he had books confiscated recalled to the realities of life he would rub himself or sigh deeply as the occasion required and resume his attempts to write as good as copperplate he hated writing the ink always crept up his fingers and the smell of ink offended him he was filled with unexpressed doubts why should writing slope down from right to left why should downstrokes be thick and upstrokes thin why should the handle of one's pen point over one's right shoulder his copy-books toward the end foreshadowed his destiny and took the form of commercial documents dear sir they ran referring to your esteemed order of the twenty-sixth alt we beg to inform you and so on the compression of mr polly's mind and soul in the educational institutions of his time was terminated abruptly by his father between his fourteenth and fifteenth birthday his father who had long since forgotten the time when his son's little limbs seemed to have come straight from god's hand and when he had kissed five minute toenails in a rapture of loving tenderness remarked it's time that dratted boy did something for a living and a month or so later mr polly began that career in business that led him at last to the sole proprietorship of a bankrupt outfitter's shop and to the stile on which he was sitting End of chapter one section one